And this is also a question that I often ask when I'm interviewing for an articling student or a young associate as to why did you go to law school or why, uh, why do you want to be a lawyer? And the answer, in my view, has to, in some shape or form, be because I want to help people or I want to do some good in the world um, because that's really what I think this profession is about. And remember, it's a profession before it's a business. And um, if the answer is, oh, because I had nothing else to do, or I thought it might be a good idea, or make a lot of money, uh, that's not a very good answer. Uh, I think the answer needs to be, I got into this profession because I can contribute to my society in some way. I can help make the world a little bit of a better place. Uh, I can help people in some way. And I think that's what being a lawyer is really all about. Hello and welcome back to Speak to a Lawyer. My name is Avi Charney and today I'm delighted to speak to my guest, Mark Isaacs. Welcome, Mark. You are a real best lawyer in the field of maritime law. You're ranked in a whole number of publications, locally, nationally, even internationally. In 2017, you were appointed the president of the Canadian Maritime Law Association. You're a professor of maritime law at the University of Toronto. It sounds like you have a very busy, successful and specialized career. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how it all started for you? Well, Abby, thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure to come and, and speak with you. Um, my uh, background is is that I you know, went to law school like everybody else did. And when I went to law school, I just wanted to be a trial lawyer. Um, and so I, when I graduated, I ended up articling with a smaller firm that did litigation work, and I got my wish. I was uh, thrown into the thrust of it early on. Uh, it was a great experience. Um, so I articled there. Uh, I then became an associate lawyer there. And, you know, within nine months of my call to the bar, I was or maybe even less than that. I was doing a solo jury trial. And those are experiences that are unheard of today. And it was a great first five or six years where I was in motions court frequently, uh, mediations, discoveries, trials, uh, just a great litigation experience. I um, began to get a little bit, uh, 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 I don't know, bored is the right word, but I always thought there was something more that I could do. I had this passion for, an intellectual passion for maritime law. So one day uh, in, I guess it was 2001, I um, quit my job and moved to New Orleans and did a graduate degree in maritime law. Uh, following that, I came back to Toronto, was briefly at my uh, old firm, and then I ended up joining uh, uh, George Strathy, who's now Chief Justice of Ontario, who at the time had a, a maritime law practice. Uh, I was a freshly minted but uh, mid-level uh, lawyer, um, maritime lawyer, joined him, and uh, shortly thereafter we became partners. George got appointed to the bench and uh, took over the practice in 2000, I think it was 2007, and the rest is history. Well, so uh, we, we're going to have to take a few steps back. Um, I studied my LLM in public international law, and uh, I thought it was sexy because there's all these different countries involved. And, um, you know, think about it, thinking about it from a practical point of view day to day, it seems like maritime law is the closest thing to that, dealing with kind of sovereign immunity and all that type of thing. So um, the question is, um, 
how how are other countries related to your to your work? How how did that happen? Just from a regular tort case to getting kind of international parties involved. Um, and if you want to take a step back, I, I noticed that you had a, a say in defining the scope of admiralty, admiralty law in Canada. So if you can define what maritime law is, first of all, before you go into the international aspects of it. Sure. There's, there's a lot there. So Canadian maritime law or admiralty law uh, is basically the field of law that deals with the shipping industry. So it's very industry specific. Uh, it doesn't so much deal with the purchase and sale of goods. It picks up from after the sale contract has been completed. So now you have a, 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 a shipment of you know widgets to use the, the law school and the business uh, term, uh, business term, shipment of widgets that are manufactured in China or somewhere in Europe that have to get to Canada or vice versa. So it has to do with the industry that does with that. So it has to do with cargo. It has to do with passengers on ships. It has to do with the commercial aspects of shipping. So that's sort of what it is. And by its very nature, it is international because ships move across the oceans from nation to nation. Uh, you mentioned public international law. Uh, before I went into law school, I had sort of thought that maybe I would go into the public service. I, I was an undergraduate of uh, public policy and administration. And I always thought maybe a diplomatic career would be, would be my uh, thing in life. Um, but I ended up going to law school and actually, I think maritime law more closely relates to private international law, which is the uh, com competition amongst legal systems of various nations, as opposed to public international law, which is more about governments and sovereign immunity, as, as you say. Right. Uh, although we frequently deal with, uh, with treaties uh, and international agreements and conventions. And it's funny because I think in law school, private international law was my worst subject in, in terms of marks. And now uh, it's something that I deal with on a regular basis. And I also found a tough comparative law and finding out which law applies to, mm -hmm. to certain cases. So that, that's really the main distinguishing factor with the maritime law is it deals with the shipping industry. Yes. So, uh, uh, as, I, as I say, it deals with things that float and sometimes don't. Um, so, it could be anything from a commercial dispute from you know, uh, people that supply ships or uh, uh, people who operate ships not getting, uh, not getting paid for whatever reason to uh, tortious incidents. So, it could be injuries where a ship strikes a dock. Uh, it could be somebody being injured on a ship. Uh, it could be cargo damage, which is sort of the bread and butter work uh, of, a, of a, a maritime practice because that's what ships are all about carrying cargo um, to uh, you know regulatory work and uh, stuff that goes on with the operation of ships and regulating uh, the business affairs so my practice is very varied in that sense in, in that every day is a different day for me uh, it all relates somehow to the shipping industry but within that uh, it's all sorts of all, all sorts of all sorts of things and and when I tell people that I'm a maritime lawyer or an admiralty lawyer, they think of it as, you know, wow, that's a very niche, narrow, tiny area of practice. Um, but I describe it almost like a keyhole. And yes, it's a keyhole, but once you open the door, it, you're, it's in a wide variety of things. So I could be doing tort work, I could be doing contract drafting, I could be doing criminal defense, um, all sorts of things, just somehow connected to the shipping industry. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's, it's fascinating uh, area through that keyhole how uh, broad it is and how many things are involved. Uh, you touched upon the private international law aspect. Can you kind of give us a framework of uh, when what law applies? Are there any general rules where the defendant is, where the damage occurred, whatever it is? Um, you know, someone comes to you, have you had to say, sorry, this is not Ontario jurisdiction? Or how, how does that kind of work with, with an issue? Sure. Uh, I've had many cases where people have come to me and I've said, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. Um, there is still going to have to be some sort of connection to, to Canada. Uh, I see this a lot, for example, in passenger injury cases. So someone will take a, a cruise on board one of the major cruise lines out of Florida or out of California. They will get injured or get sick on that on that cruise ship and they come home and they want to sue the cruise line for, for some reason. Uh, often in their passenger contracts, uh, there is a clause that requires them to go litigate either in Florida or California or wherever the the shipping company is based. Um, likewise, in, in most commercial contracts uh, for the shipment of goods, the carrier will have an exclusive jurisdiction clause in their bill of lading that says if you're going to uh, sue us, you have to sue us and it's usually in their home jurisdiction. So a German-owned shipping company would typically have courts of Germany um, or, uh, or the courts of the UK are also a common choice because they're considered to be more neutral, but I'd also say they are more common in the shipping industry. Uh, we also have laws in Canada that allow you to sue in Canada, most notably something that we call Section 46 of the Marine Liability Act. So certain aspects of exclusive jurisdiction clauses in bills of lading are nullified uh, in the Canadian courts if there's a connection to Canada. But certainly those issues arise all the time. And yes, sometimes we have to look at and say what law is going to apply uh, to this particular case. And then you go through the, the private international law analysis that you would learn in law school. Um, I interviewed uh, Stanley Fisher recently. He's a leading arbitrator. So I was wondering, because of those jurisdictional issues, is arbitration a big thing in maritime law? Certainly. Um, I think now I'm probably doing as many arbitrations as I am court hearings. Um, they arise frequently. I've had, I think, uh, uh, two arbitration matters uh, since this pandemic uh, has been ongoing. I'm uh, in the midst of one now involving a, an injury to a worker um, uh, on a ship. Um, I've had a number that where there are, the matter's been referred to arbitration either in London or in Singapore, which are large arbitration hubs in the international shipping community. So yes, uh, it's, it's very common. Uh, it's partly because um, I think arbitration can resolve disputes faster. It's also because the parties can craft their dispute resolution mechanism. And there is still some element of concern that um, courts in certain parts of the world aren't going to be as um, receptive. Uh, so the neutral ground like England or, or Singapore, where uh, it's viewed as having an established legal system uh, where everybody uh, can get an equal uh, fair shake at the, at, uh, at the justice process. Right. Um, so before COVID, I'm sure you had to travel a lot to these arbitration hubs to conduct arbitrations. Was there a lot of travel involved? And what about now? Are you saying you're conducting arbitration? Is that online? Well, now it's, uh, it, it's online and we've become... Uh, 
uh, you know, very everyone has become very frequent uh, users of Zoom uh, or Google Meets or Microsoft Teams and all the various platforms out there. So now they're being conducted uh, virtually. Uh, previously, I did not have to travel so much for the arbitrations um, because most of my arbitrations were done in Canada. I, although I have had a few uh, outside outside of Canada. Uh, those I've attended by both telephone as well as through you know the miracle of email, and I started practicing in a day when we didn't have email. Uh, so, but there is still a fair bit of travel in in my practice compared to many of my other colleagues mm-hmm. in other in, in other areas of practice. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Tell me about your first court experiences. You mentioned the first five years you were just thrown in, and you get these young lawyers that just, uh, you know, they don't have maybe the good guidance that you have from Mr. Strathy or whatever it is. Did you make any uh, blunders at first, and what did you learn from them? Oh, I, I'm sure I made lots of blunders, and there's uh, there's a couple that uh, that I uh, joke about to this day. But there's three that that come to mind. Um, one was my very first court appearance as counsel in a matter, and I was still in law school. I think it was the summer after my first year of law school. I was volunteering for the legal aid clinic at, at my law school in the criminal division, and the reason I picked criminal was because you got into court, and that's what I wanted to do. And so I was representing some fellow, and he was charged with some traffic offense. I think it was driving without insurance or producing false evidence of insurance or something like that. And uh, so it was right after the first uh, first year of law school and I, I get up bright and early for my, my 10 o'clock court appearance and I put on my, my only suit, my freshly pressed only suit. And I thought I would, it was at uh, the courthouse I used to be at Young and Shepherd. There used to be a uh, provincial court there. And so I thought I would stop at the uh, little, little diner that's across the street and you know, make sure I had a breakfast so I had fuel in me to go. And I remember I, I, I got to the diner and I ordered a you know, big breakfast and it came and got in front of me and I just completely lost my appetite and got nauseous, realizing you know, that I was about to go into court and you know, represent somebody on, on some matter um, that was obviously gonna be very important to them, but you know, it's just that, that sheer moment of terror that, that, uh, that struck. Uh, then I remember the first jury trial uh, I ever did and it was uh, back when we were on the uh, days of the running list. And that, that was a system where you didn't get a fixed date for trial, but rather there was a sittings that started on a particular day, usually like the day after Labor Day or something. And then your number was called, and when you were called, you started. And this was up in Barrie. And I remember getting a call, it was about, it was about 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning saying that my trial was starting at 2. And I looked down and it was, and I realized that I was wearing a pair of oxblood shoes. I didn't, it was like the one day I didn't wear my black shoes to the office. And I had to go to court my first day of this trial wearing a pair of oxblood shoes. I've never owned a pair of oxblood shoes since that, uh, since that day. And also in the course of that trial, I remember beware of the rolly wheels in the of chairs in the courtroom, because we wear the gowns. And I had rolled over my gowns uh, when I was sitting down. And the other counsel on the opposite side was a was a great lawyer. He's now a judge as well. Um, 
but I remember I had rolled over my gowns and he asked the question of a witness that I was going to object to. So I began to stand up, but my gowns were caught underneath my chair. And so it yanked me back down into my seat in this floppish manner. The entire courtroom broke up in laughter uh, as, I flailed, as I flailed around being caught up in my own gowns. So I've uh, since learned from that, always fold your gowns in on your seat uh, when, when you're sitting in a chair in a chair with rolly wheels. Great tip. And then uh, one that uh, still to this day haunts me as a maritime lawyer. Uh, it's probably about 20 years ago now. I'm, I'm uh, cross-examining a witness. It was a boat collision on uh, one of the uh, uh, lakes in the, in the Muskoka area. And it was a terrible collision. And it was, it was, it was, uh, there was fatalities and severe injuries. Um, and it happened uh, late at night, and one of the issues was visibility as between the various boaters. And I'm cross-examining this witness, and part of my role was to establish how dark it was, and therefore how uh, unable uh, uh, one of the operators would have been to see the other one. So cross-examining this witness, and I'm getting out of them that it's dark, and the moon wasn't out, et cetera, et cetera. And then I also, and I, went, I took the step too far, and I said, and there weren't any street lights on, were there? And, uh, and as it came out of my mouth, everybody in the courtroom began to realize, like, of course not. It's the middle of a lake. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I had a lot of great experiences in my, in my early career um, that we all make mistakes. Uh, we all do little things that uh, uh, embarrass us. But, you know, 20 years later, they become great stories to tell at dinner parties. Right. Uh, as long as you can learn from, from every experience and grow from it. Yes. That's what it's about. So what would you tell that first few years lawyer going into the courtroom who lost his appetite? I would say that there is no substitute for hard work. Uh, there is no substitute for preparation. Um, and you may not be able to bill it all to a client. Uh, it may seem un. Uh, unnecessary, but it is. It is necessary. Uh, you, these are just the things you have to do to master your craft and to master your abilities. Um, I remember once, uh, I think I was an articling student, and I had a trial uh, which involved uh, a fuel injection system of a Jaguar motor vehicle. And I don't know much about cars, or at least at that time I didn't. I wasn't very mechanical, but I went to the the Toronto Public Library and pulled as many books on uh, on engines and fuel injection systems, and taught myself as much as I could learn about how a uh, a car engine and with a fuel injection system worked, so I could understand the the mechanics behind it all. Um, you know, couldn't bill any of that work to to a client. But that wasn't, for me, the, the important thing. The important thing was mastering my craft. And, you know, I won that trial. And I think that's what uh, people who are starting out have to realize, is that it's going to be a lot of incredibly hard work in your first five years. Um, and it will continue on uh, for the rest of your career, but particularly in the, those first five years. And you have to be prepared to put in the time and to put in the work. Um. That's absolutely true. There's no substitute for hard work and determination. Um, you said you started out um, at a maritime law firm, and that's kind of what got you into the maritime field, right? No, I started out at, a, at an insurance firm, insurance and litigation firm. Okay. Uh, I should say more of a litigation firm that had a lot of insurance work. And then as I was there, it became more and more 
uh, insurance oriented. Um, and then from there, I left to go pursue a degree in maritime law and came back to uh, join uh, uh, Chief Justice Strathy. Okay. Um, and, and at that point, Justice Strathy was doing exclusively maritime law? No, he wasn't doing it exclusively. He had a large maritime practice, but he also had uh, a commercial litigation and civil litigation practice as well. Okay. It seems like you were saying before, it's a very niche area, uh, at least uh, the keyhole point of view to get in. Uh, you know, look at yourself going back. You're an ambitious young lawyer and you want to do something with an international element, perhaps even maritime law itself. What would you tell that young lawyer? How would they get into it one way or another if they don't have uh, a firm that's willing to take them? For certain areas, I think it would be very difficult unless you find somebody that already practices in the area. Um, when I decided to do my career change, go from being just a, a litigation lawyer or an insurance litigation lawyer to a maritime lawyer, I went off and I went to school to do so, and uh, I went to the, you know the the best LLM program in the world for uh, for that. Um, decided to come back to Toronto because it was home. And then I spent about a year trying to develop my own maritime law practice, and I was not very successful at it, uh, largely because there were established players in the market. Uh, so I ended up joining one of the established players in the market and uh, took off from there. Uh, so for a young lawyer who's interested in a particular area, I would say seek out the best uh, of the uh, of the lawyers in that area uh, to try to work with them. Uh, seek out the best education in that area if, if you are if you are you know uh, absolutely intent on becoming uh, a great tax lawyer. Um, do an LLM program uh, in tax law. Although I suggest working for a few years before you go back to do an LLM. Um, if you're looking for something international. You may have to be prepared to move to a market that is much more international. Uh, you, when young people come to me and say, oh, I want to be a maritime lawyer, I say, that's great, move to London, England, because the stuff that they do in London um, is so much more uh, voluminous as well as advanced and complex compared to what we, we do here. Um, but that brings with it a whole new set of problems, uh, you know, picking up and moving across the world and trying to get uh, in the bar of another jurisdiction. Um, I, I will admit that it's not easy. It takes a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck. Sure. Yeah, that's always the thing. Is it more luck or hard work, but uh, a bit of both? Yes. Um, I noticed actually that you're looking to grow your firm. You're always looking to grow your firm. You're on the you're on the expansion mode, which is a, a really great thing. Um, looking at a junior lawyer to hire, let's say, assuming all else being equal and they all have, let's say, a year or two of insurance uh, experience, what type of traits are you looking for, or anything beyond the experience? Yeah, I, I'm looking for people that have a passion for the law. You can't go into this career thinking it's just a job. You have to be folks that this is your career, this is your life's work, it is your calling. So people that want to dedicate their life to the service of the law. People that are bright and articulate and written skills are exceptionally important. As lawyers, what we mainly do is we write. Um, and nowadays, with so much more being uh, done based on written submissions, emails, etc., good quality written materials is, is key. Uh, 
Uh, I'm looking for people that aren't afraid of hard work. And I always like to see on a resume uh, people who have had jobs outside of law um, that, but show that they've, they've worked hard. Uh, if your first job uh, is working as a research assistant for a professor in law school, it makes me wonder. Um, because you've never really done anything outside of that. I like to see people who have on their resumes, you know, that they, you know, worked at McDonald's when they were in high school or uh, did something else, but they got their hands a little dirty. So you have to have ambition. You have to have a passion for the law. Um, you have to have a willingness to uh, work hard and advance your career. Uh, you have to have good uh, writing skills, um, all, the, all those traits. I'll take this uh, opportunity to plug internationally trained lawyers because uh, they have that international experience. They generally work quite hard to, to get qualified in their home jurisdiction and then in Ontario again. So mm -hmm. something to consider. Oh, uh, 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 certainly. Yeah, nice. Um, so now let's just uh, fast forward a few years and uh, the, the lawyer's there, he's at the firm, he or she uh, doing really well. Uh, now kind of the next phase in your career from let's say the five to 20 years, the first five years you're just working hard to try to become a competent lawyer. After that, what do you think the, the challenges are? And if I can point you in the direction of, of building a firm and marketing. Well, I think as you move into the next phase of your career, it becomes the phase where you have to begin to build your own book. And that takes um, as much work, if not more, than it does to become a lawyer. Uh, you have to, first off, do great work to begin with. You have to provide great client service. Uh, that's returning the phone calls, returning the emails, all that sort of thing. You have to get it right when you do work for, for your clients uh, so that they feel that they've gotten good value for their service and you've gotten the result or the best result you, you can for them. So there'll be the word of mouth referrals and, and the respect that you'll begin to develop within the community. And then you also have to get out there. You have to write articles. You have to uh, attend uh, conferences. You have to speak at conferences. You have to begin to build your network. Um, you, no one ever got a file by sitting behind their desk and just waiting for the phone to ring. Uh, maybe you can in some you know, smaller communities where you know, if you're the only or the uh, one of the two lawyers in town, uh, but in a large community um, or in a large practice area, you're going to have to get out there and you're going to have to make yourself known. Um, there are some people who are fortunate enough to work at firms that um, generate lots of work. Um, you know, there's a number of uh, firms that are like that where the work just keeps coming in and you can, uh, you can be at that firm and the work will get handed to you. And that's certainly how it was for me in the first couple of years of my practice. But eventually you have to go out and begin to uh, see the clients and have them trust you and like you and want to refer work to you because they know they're going to get good value. Do you find that any form of uh, publicity works better than the other or you just need a bit of everything, speaking, writing, this, that and put it all together or one thing kind of worked? I think it depends on the individual uh, and also depends on the practice area. Um, for me, I've always been uh, more of the speaking, the writing, um, 
uh, I've done some conferences and things like that. Uh, I know that there are other men and women out there who are very much uh, what I call lunch focused, that they take uh, someone to lunch every single day. Uh, and that's, and they view, uh, you know, there's that marketing tip that you're going to eat lunch anyway. You might as well eat it with somebody else. Right. So I know uh, people that uh, make a practice of always going to lunch with some somebody new every day or having a coffee meeting every day. Uh, there are some people that uh, spend lots of time going to conferences or other networking events uh, and try just to do, you know, the cocktail party circuit. Um so you have to uh, find out what works for, for you. If you're not the kind of person that likes to get up in front of a, a, a conference and give a paper on something to, to an industry or a legal organization, then you know, it's not going to go well for you if, you if you can't present well, if you can't speak well. So you're going to have to find something else to do it. So it, it depends on your individual personality. But I do think a lot of it has to do with the personal relationships um, as well as your ability to deliver when the time comes. Uh, buying uh, a, a client, a prospective client, a fancy lunch isn't going to to win you much business. You have to be able to deliver. Right. Absolutely. It's always about uh, client service and, and providing the best uh, yes. service and advice that you can. Um, I'm always impressed by people of your vintage, such experience that you keep producing and you keep working hard ultimately throughout your whole career. So is there any tip you can give? Obviously you say the first five years you have to work hard, but then it never ends and it continues. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage a law firm and the employment issues that are involved along with the actual legal work that you do? And then on top of all that, you're still publishing and speaking. So is there a certain um, way you, you know, divide up your schedule that allows a certain block of writing time and producing? And how, how do you just combine all of that together? You know, how would you advise us to go ahead and, and be able to produce for such so many years? Again, I come back to, you know, hard work, uh, very little uh, weekends to yourself, um, uh, very few days of holiday. Uh, and I know that's not a very good answer. That's not a very satisfactory answer for many. Uh, but, the, you know, that's the reality of it. Uh, I mean, I think in my first two years of practice or something, I had all of like five days off. Um, you know, I don't necessarily recommend that today, but that, well, that's part of the reality is that hard work requires a lot of time. Uh, I think good schedule management uh, is, uh, is, is another important factor. Um, so, for example, the semesters that I'm teaching, uh, I make sure I block off. Uh, I usually teach on a Monday night, so I usually block off from noon Monday uh, for no appointments, nothing to be done, so I can sit down and uh, uh, you know reread the course materials and prepare the lecture. And even though I've done it you know many times every year, I still reread the cases because I'm expecting my students to and uh, you know go over my my lecture notes. So you block off that time. You block off the time uh, for certain conferences that you know you want to go to. And you're going to have to block off time on either side of it for, for travel and for preparation. So part of it is just schedule management and part of it is, is picking what's important to you. What about the writing? Where does that fit into your schedule? Because you have a lot of publications and I think as a lawyer that's quite key. 
a lot of it has to do, a lot of my publications in the last number of years have been uh, connected to conferences in some way. So I've either been asked to speak at a, a, a conference or give a paper at a conference. And so in, in that sense, you're killing two birds with one stone. You uh, present a, a particular paper for, you know, the, from in my example, the Canadian Maritime Law Association or the Transportation Lawyers Association. Um, and then you have uh, a paper that you've done with it, which you can then you can then publish. It's also you know if you uh, are involved in a case that is of particular interest, you can uh, take what you've uh, learned that's already in your head from that case and uh, turn something out. I tell younger associates that you know you may have worked on uh, a research memo or uh, the bones of an opinion for something. If it's an interesting issue, you can later on take that and uh, turn that into a paper which you can publish in one of the trade magazines or something like that. That's, that's great advice and try to repurpose, they call it, repurpose yes. your materials. Um, you, you mentioned your teaching experience uh, at U of T. What, what kind of advice do you give your students? Is it a general type, type thing besides, you know, work hard? How do you succeed in, in law? What, what are you telling these young, ambitious law grads? Well, um, you know, I, I, I tell them that just because they went to law school uh, doesn't necessarily mean they have to be lawyers. And I caution people uh, about going to law school and becoming a lawyer if they're not doing it for the right reasons. When young people come to me and say, I want to be a lawyer, my question to them is always, well, why? Uh, and if they don't have a good answer to that question, then I tell them, you need to go and think about that question uh, because you're going to be unhappy. And there's a lot of people who get trapped in, in this lawyer trap where they are bright people in undergrad, uh, but they're not really sure what they want to do. So somebody says you should go, you should go to law school because, you know, you're really smart. Uh, so they go to law school and they're not really sure that they, why they're in law school, but, you know, they do okay in law school. Uh, then they uh, get a good job, you know, either on Bay Street or somewhere else. And now they are, you know, 27 years of age. They've got seven or eight years of education behind them, probably a sizable student debt. They're making a pretty good dollar because, you know, we pay lawyers pretty well, particularly young lawyers, pretty well. And now they're on this treadmill. Five years go by. They're still struggling to pay student debt. Uh, they now maybe have a, a spouse or partner and they might have a mortgage. And they're now on this treadmill. And they never really knew why they went to law school other than somebody said, hey, you should go to law school. So unless you really know why you want to be a lawyer, you're not going to be happy at it. You're not going to become very good at it unless you have the passion for it. So that's one thing I would say. Uh, uh, secondly, um, I think it's very important for lawyers to have the clarity of thought in terms of what are the real issues that are involved in this case, particularly in a litigation practice. You know, uh, good lawyers can spot all the issues. Great lawyers can spot the issues that really matter. And those will be the issues that they, they advance in a case. So have confidence in, in your uh, intellectual and analytical ability to realize that, yeah, there are arguments here, but I don't have to make all those arguments. Here's the one really good one that the case is going to turn on. That's brilliant. That really takes experience and separates the great from the good. 
I think. Um, you know, the, the last uh, few months and, and year 2020 has, has brought major changes for all of us. Um, how has it been for you? What kind of changes have you experienced? And what kind of changes would you still like to see, perhaps, in the legal system, if any? Well, 2020 has been a, a, a year of great changes. And what it's brought for me is it's really pushed me into the digital world uh, and the digital practice. Uh, I started uh, practicing law in a day when we didn't have email, we didn't have cell phones, or rather cell phones weren't as ubiquitous as, the, as they are today. Um, I did not have a computer on my desk, uh, so everything was a paper file. Um, uh, so, uh, and we didn't even have the, when I first started we didn't even have the, the fancy word perfect that we have today it was that old blue screen word perfect where it didn't look like a page uh, uh, on the screen um, so I've seen a, a transformation in the last 20 years in terms of the way digital is caught up and you know as, as litigation lawyers we have stacks of files and bankers boxes and cabinets galore and over the last six months, I've come to realize I don't need all that paper as much as I thought I did. Um, and so we have transitioned to a much more uh, paperless type operation. And I see us going more paperless uh, going forward. Whether we will ever be completely paperless, I don't know. I don't know if the legal practice could do that. But I certainly see that as uh, in, in the future, we will not have the uh, the stacks of paper in the banker's boxes like we once did. Uh, and I think that's generally a good thing. Um, I also think that the stuff that we always had to travel for, we don't have to anymore. All the meetings that we went to and the time that was consumed in doing that. Um, you know, I was on a discovery yesterday in a multi-party action where there were lawyers from all over the province and one from the United States. Um, and we were all, you know, there was 11 of us on, on a Zoom uh, 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 discovery. Before, that would have been thousands of hours uh, or dollars uh, worth of time of people traveling uh, to just to get to a discovery and the time that would have been spent on that. We didn't have to do that anymore. Just, just on that a second, do you feel that actual discovery is as effective, you know, some limitations with not being face-to-face? -face? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think there are certain cases where it's fine. I think in uh, some of my uh, uh, commercial, part of my commercial practice, where a lot of times the witness on the other side doesn't have a, a personal or emotional connection to the matter, and it's 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 going to be heavily document driven, and the witness on the other side is there to you know confirm certain facts or try to elicit certain omissions from them. But uh, it's uh, whereas in a personal injury case where you want to size up the person across the table, get a look at them, um, uh, see how they react, uh, feel their emotions, that sort of thing. Um, and there's also a personal connection that you you with the other counsel involved that you that you lack. Um, you know, at the end of a multi-day discovery, you know, it's common for counsel to have you know lunch together or go for a drink at the at the end of it all. Um, 
you know, uh, didn't uh, you know didn't happen in this case. So I think back to uh, earlier this, or I guess it was in July that I did a, um, a court of appeal hearing uh, by Zoom with the court of appeal, and it would have been common at the end of a court of appeal hearing for all the counsel involved, and there was four lawyers on either side, uh, you know, for the eight lawyers to go out and have a drink or have a coffee at the uh, cafeteria the, at uh, Osgood afterwards doesn't happen. So we're going to lose that some of that personal touch, unfortunately, that has made um, uh, the legal profession a profession, not just a business. Right. And going forward, do you foresee any other changes, big or small, or any? Well, it's hard to see what the big changes w- would be. If, uh, if I could uh, predict that type of stuff accurately, I might go into the stock markets. Um, I do think we will finally be uh, much more uh, digital friendly. Uh, the Ontario Rules of Civil Procedures still don't provide for service by email. That's going to change, I hope. Uh, the filing of documents, um, I, I, I hope will change. Um, you know, I would. Uh, I remember years ago there used to be something called the Toronto Document Exchange, which was uh, where law firms and other businesses had a, like a mailbox at a central location, and you put documents for each other there. I'd like to see that uh, develop uh, electronically so that we could uh, serve all the other parties to to a lawsuit just by uploading uh, uploading a pleading to a uh, uh, like a Dropbox type thing uh, that all the parties have access to and that be it rather than having to fax it out to everybody swear an affidavit of service all that sort of cumbersome stuff that would that we do now could be very much simplified by uh, having sort of a central repository uh, for each case yeah there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, yeah. We're, we're on track. I got a couple more short questions for you. Sure. Um, you mentioned that story when you were first going into court and you felt like you couldn't eat your stomach was turning. A bit. Yes. Does that ever happen these days? Yes. Um, not to the same degree, but sure, whenever I've got something big on the go, you still feel the butterflies in, in, in your stomach. Um You know, I have now enough years of experience behind me that, you know, I don't think there's any case I can't handle. Um, But, you know, there's still times where you want to do a good job for the client. You are facing strong opposition. Um, Yeah, you're going to get a little bit of butterflies in the stomach. But that's what makes uh, makes this profession great is that there's still a thrill to doing it um, every time you do it. I mean, it's not uh, paralyzed. Of course, right. it, it, but it's um, uh, it's it's exciting, and I imagine in, in some sense like a like a pro athlete uh, when they're about to uh, start a race, you know. Yeah, I, th- I think you need that. That's a critical element, that excitement and thrill. Yes. When you're doing what you do, it, it keeps you coming back. Sure. It's so important, and, and it comes towards that passion that you described. You know, when you're going into law, I think it all comes together, that passion, that drive, right. that hard work, and, and that's really how to, how to be successful. Um, the ships usually have uh, names and quotes on them. Uh, there's some quite famous ones out there. If you had a huge, massive ship, would you have a favorite quote you'd like to put on? On a ship? Um, Or a billboard for that matter. Well... You know, it's, it's, I don't know about the ship, but it's funny you asked me about a quote. My father was a great collector of quotes uh, and sayings. He, he collected hundreds, if not thousands of them, and even has a website uh, 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 of all his various sayings that he collected over the years. And so I grew up with sayings, you know, on placards all around my house. Nice. 
I don't know if there's any one in particular, and I don't know if there's any one that I could quote. Although if I was to do something on a billboard, I would probably say something to the effect of, um, although I cannot change the world, I can uh, change the world for somebody. Beautiful. That's so nice. If you, you, you want to leave us with any last words, that's a beautiful thing. And I mean, I think it's in fact our duty to make a change in one way or another to, if not the world, at least an individual yeah. to try to try to help people. But uh, you, you've been very generous with your time and your insights. So we, we thank you for sharing sharing that with us. But before we let you go, any, any last words and maybe how people can contact you if they need to? Sure. Um, let me circle back to the question that uh, I ask when people say, you know, I want to be a lawyer or what should I do to how to become a lawyer, et cetera. And I ask them why. And this is also a question that I often ask when I'm interviewing for an articling student or a young associate as to why'd you go to law school or why, uh, why do you want to be a lawyer? And the answer in my view has to in some shape or form be because I want to help people or I want to do some good in the world um, because that's really what I think this profession is about. And remember, it's a profession before it's a business. And um, if the answer is, oh, because I had nothing else to do or I thought it might be a good idea or make a lot of money, uh, that's not a very good answer. Uh, I think the answer needs to be I got into this profession because I can contribute to my society in some way. I can help make the world a little bit of a better place. Uh, I can help people in some way. And I think that's what being a lawyer is really all about. Thank you, Mark. Certainly. And people are always welcome to contact me. uh, And I'm reachable out there on the web or at mark, M-A-R-C, at I-O-Law-L-A-W dot C-A. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the end. If you need to reach me, I'm at avi at charneylegal.ca, the home of this podcast, charneylegal.ca. Look forward to seeing you on the next one. Bye for now.